Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. So I think the kind of violence you're emphasizing here is a function of the splitting that is that is a component of certain basic assumption ideas. So I don't want to go too far into splitting because we've talked a lot about splitting and projective identification, which happen in groups. But because what I really want to talk about is group mentality, and I kind of want to talk about suggestion in groups. And I do think that splitting is present any time that there's a high ideal that's in the mix of things. And yes, that can happen in protests. But the, where, where I want to go, and I want to just kind of frame it a little bit, is to look at the civil rights protests and the fact that they were nonviolent. But in order to be nonviolent, they had to take an enormous amount of training. Everybody had to be trained down to the nth degree, not to react, not to say certain things. It was more like being trained to actually contain yourself under all circumstances at all times. And that training was was very tough. It was very severe. People got beaten up in the training so that they could actually respond nonviolently later. And so in order to have any kind of nonviolent demonstration with large groups of people, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of forethought, and a lot of training. Because when we are in groups, or particularly if we get into something like a group that's sort of following a slogan or a group that's following a charismatic leader. And here you could think of cults and people that do all sorts of weird things like the Jonestown cult. They do things that they wouldn't otherwise do when they're in the group setting. And, you know, if you really are wanting a peaceful protest, it takes a lot of conscious effort and training to bring it about because the nature of groups, I believe, is actually not conscious and is more organized by archetypes, reactivity, momentary kinds of experiences of each other and not by anything that actually, you know, keeps the thing together so that it could be a consistently nonviolent thing. No, that's a very, that's a very good comment, and it brings me to the other part of Beyond's work with groups, which is the work group, what he called the work group. And it's a, it's a type of group functioning different from the basic assumption group, and all groups, all real groups, are combinations 
of basic assumption groups and work groups. So we shouldn't get the idea there's any group in reality that is a basic assumption group. It's un the terminology is a little confusing, but you can call it basic assumption trend, if you like, or work trend. Mm -hmm. Within Both operate together within the group. The I, I don't know that much about the civil rights demonstrators in the 60s, but I do know that they were highly disciplined. Yeah. If, if you look at the... They're highly trained, too. too. Highly trained. And it's like military training. Yes, it was. See, the thing about the military is that it's not just about violence. It has right. to be controlled violence. Exactly. Uncontrolled violence is worthless militarily. Okay. Right. If you exactly. have an organized, a disorganized mob against mm -hmm. an organized military force, it's no contest. Yeah, right. Like the right. French Revolution. Exactly. Right. So the organization you're talking about and mm -hmm. the discipline and mm -hmm. the training, that's what Biyama would call work, work group mm -hmm. function. Mm -hmm. And the work group function, the work group, unlike the basic assumption group, is oriented toward reality. Mm -hmm. It's realistic. It has a sense of its own limitations. It has a sense, uh, it lacks a sense of omnipotence. It doesn't feel it has an answer. Mm -hmm. There's uncertainty about whether it's going to succeed or not. And there's a sense of, of insecurity about whether it's going to be able to ever solve the urgent problems. Well, Bion was in the military. Yeah. And he was a military officer. He was a, he was a highly decorated military officer. Right. So he knew that. You know, one thing that um, I'm reflecting on as I'm listening is, is during my uh, years in, in Paris, there were so many huge, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people who would pour into the street. And the thing that I found fascinating is you had every kind of walk of life. You had parents, grandparents, children. But one of the things they would do in relation to their dialogue with the government was they would have like an outer circle that would protect the inner circle so that when the agitators who wanted to misuse mm -hmm. or create violence or break it up would, would try to penetrate, there was a ring that took care of that, which I found really, really fascinating. So that was one reality, but you had, you know, the whole, the city came to a stop. But they but were then structured were, then. They that's right. And then, that ring. then yeah. we go to rage. We go to the we go to the issues with with um, discrimination around poverty and immigration, and the only thing that those people could do was blow up cars, mm -hmm. smash windows. They felt they had no voice, and so you had incredible violence. And then you had it, you had incredible violence, and it was very it became very very dangerous. So we that might have been intentional. They may have gone it, out intending to well, smash that, windows. Yeah, and break up I, I don't know. So I just on. know that the rage, the, the the rage that was felt within the, the, those groups was so palpable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but the different to see the difference, but the way that the Europeans dealt with protest. Well, I think the, in a way we don't have here anymore. Well, the, we did. I mean, the civil rights organization was the best. Right. But the fact is that when you have a crowd or a group. You have to either have discipline or you will have these other things happening because, again, there are these archetypal well, responses that people haven't, they haven't, they don't have forethought about it. Now, but going out and burning cars, probably people are thinking they're going to do that. It's probably not just extemporaneous because they have to have materials with them. They, it struck me very much in working with the military that the training that I saw the rooks out at Norwich where they go through basic training 
was very much like Zen training. I mean, again and again, I couldn't believe the comparison. Everything that they had to do, walk in a straight line, keep their eyes down, open doors for others. Don't, you were not allowed to speak at mealtime. You were not allowed to involve yourself socially with other people. All of it was to create that discipline in which the group could be used in a disciplined way. And in Zen training, you get the same kind of training because Zen is a group activity. It is not an individual activity. When you're in a retreat or whatever, all eating has to be coordinated, all sleeping, all movement, sometimes of large groups, has to be coordinated without any, giving anyone any orders. It just all has to be coordinated. So it's like the opposite of, of a mob or a crowd, you know, and the military is the opposite of a mob or a crowd, but unless a mob breaks out within it or a crowd breaks out. So there's, there's a difference in these two different kinds of groups. And it has to do with discipline and maybe in the protests in Paris. Yeah, well, so the was, thing that I'm thinking too is inequality. I mean, there are certain people who don't have the privilege of that kind of leadership or organization or parental guidance or any of that. I mean, it's raw. And I feel today that that's a really big element right now. There's a rawness there that's not, yes. And then you have the educated, you've got the good, the people who have, you know, are are willing to be more open and conscious and understanding and willing to take on some self-sacrifice and discipline. And we've got all of that. But then we've got this whole other wave that's coming in right now that's raw. Well, what Polly's talking about is what BMA calls this organization and discipline is what BM would call the work group aspect of uh-huh. the military. However, there's no organization in, re- in real life that is pure work group. Right, right. So there's no organization in real life that is pure basic assumption. Right. The military is a certain kind of work group. They work, they organize, they instill discipline, they train people, they have exercises, right. and, uh, a command structure, and so on that's very... Uh, you know, no questions that has to get in order, he's supposed to follow it. However, it's also an expression of the fight-flight basic assumption group in the sense that what they do, what this all this organization is for, is the effective application of extreme violence. And the more violence, the better. They're, you know, they're happy with, with us. And it's true that, and so that the leaders of the military even though they say, well, we're just soldiers and we follow orders and we get orders from the president and we follow the orders of... That's true. They do follow the orders of civilian, non-military authorities, but they put themselves in a position, they've worked their whole lives to get into a position where they're only going to get certain kinds of orders, which are, we, we need violence right here. Okay, I can do that. Someone in the diplomatic corps, let's say, in the, in the position of a military general would not be very good at that job because his heart would not be in it. These guys' hearts are in it. They do believe that violence is a good solution to certain problems and that talking, you know, has its limits. The diplomats believe that, that violence has its limits. You know, it's a different emphasis. So there's no organization that is free of both kinds of activities. Right. And what the, the relevance of, of this group, I don't know if you want to talk about that if I'm getting off, off topic, but the relevance of Beyond's work to, to my work, his ideas apply to a group 
as small as two people. Right. Any two people. Yes, a, a mother and a child, had, yeah. right. or uh, a partner, couples, yeah. uh, work partners, and so on. But I also found it fascinating when I was reading your book and when you talked about the origins, or maybe if I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting, but like the origins of the psychoanalytic tradition started in suggestion way yeah. back historically, when. Historically, that's historically, that's yes, yes. I mean, I had never kind of made that link before, but yeah. I thought, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, well, mostly yeah. everything really runs by suggestion right. in, a, in a group situation. Psychoanalysis certainly was using it. And it well, it, it was prior to that. I mean, hypnosis and so on uses suggestion. Just to, to tie this thing about all groups can go either way towards, right. you know, towards this kind of archetypal basic assumption or towards work and structure and discipline. It's not either way. It's both but ways. Both ways. They can go at any moment one way or the other way. I would say also within the military, I mean, I, again, I think if you were in a military environment and you said the thing about violence, most everybody, even people who are training simply to be, um, you know, in combat, they would say that violence is the last resort. So the military does not see itself as a violent organization at all. It sees itself as using everything until violence is necessary. And because now much of the violence that's done by our military is not done by people. It's done, I mean, it's done by people in distant places who do the, use the drones or the bombs. They're not actually doing combat, you know, very little combat. Those people that are removed are more like a work group, but they're doing the violence. Mm. You know, so they're, they're, they might be in Arizona, you know, doing but, but, virtual, virtual reality, which is dropping bombs or organizing drones over in Syria. What Bion says about that is that the way the work group and the basic assumption group come together is in what he called a specialized work group. And the specialized work group, the military is an example of a specialized work group, so that the military says any threat or any you know, problem that faces our group, our country, you know, if it comes right down to it, we can take care of it. However, they say, the violence, the capability that we have for violence is so horrible. And so, it's horrible even concrete. It is so terrible that we must do everything we can to avoid using it, mm -hmm. short of getting rid of it. That's the specialized work group. Mm -hmm. the, the church is a specialized work group that says God will provide, but also says uh, God helps those who help themselves. Okay, so otherwise, you know, and the, the pairing group is not as not as evident. Probably has something to do with the the aristocracy, and this kind of interest on a certain hereditary group being special, you know, and the rest of uh, the rest of the group being ordinary. But we can't just sit around waiting for the Messiah. Mm -hmm. We are cautioned to expect the Messiah, but we got to do more than sit around and wait. And so you're saying that a specialized work group could be the guy using the drones? He's not, he's not doing yes. violence himself? Under, well, no, a specialized work group would be the, the entire military. And uh, the guy using the drones is part of the military. Mm -hmm. I, I think the thing that I would say about the military as it exists right now, number one, it's not, there's no draft. So it's really only the people that have to go into the military that typically go in, or there, there are people that want to go in, but usually their parents have been. So it's not like it was during the Vietnam War where anybody 
could not, well, any man. They were drafted. Drafted into it. And also the effects of military training. I just want to mention that I have found that people who have been in the military actually are able to work with their, let's say, impulses or unconscious motivations. They're able to work with them with greater containment, no matter what the situation is. In other words, that is a training. So they've been trained in a form of mindfulness. They're trained in a form of mindfulness. And there are so few people, ordinary people now, that are trained in the military. So again, when you have these, these crowds or mobs or protests, very few of them are going to have had military training. Whereas in the past, more people, because there were just more people going into the military. So even in the civil rights demonstrations, there were a lot of people in there that had been in the military. They knew how to work with their impulses. But the people that are in kind of protests and and groups and mobs now, most of them have not had that training. So again, we're talking about how we're facing in our society right now or or in the world, just so much breakdown of all our institutions. Well, how difficult it is to contain yourself when you're in a crowd or a group or a mob. And that if you had no training for it, I think it's harder to to respond. Well, at the same time, we shouldn't idealize the military. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, there. I don't think we should idealize anybody. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I don't. I don't want to single out the military for exactly. de-idealizing. Because I don't the, mil- the military, anybody. the military is, uh, you know, composed of people like yeah. like, like everything. Yeah, else. like the Zen groups are, yeah, like the people, churches are. People are different. You know, yeah. I mean. However much military training people get, it doesn't stop certain veterans from going on rampages. Yeah, but again... Killing a lot of people. But that's rare. That's rare. To be fair about it, it's really rare. Well, it's rare for non... It's rare in any of it. All I'm saying is, it's not a panacea, is military training. And if everybody were still in the military... I'm not sure that. No, but I do think there's. I think there's some. I I actually think it's mindfulness training. As I think training, I think some kind of training with your impulses. Or it's like you're even thinking of education. You know, once upon a time, education had enormous resource for us, and now education has been so broken down that it doesn't give people access to critical thinking or or understanding the other or containing their impulses or containing their impulses exactly i mean so much that we thought we kind of had more control over now we're finding it's not the case there's there's sort of less available to people to work with their own impulses than they're used to be i think yeah but i I want to get back to your um, your interest in beyond group work so that we can maybe kind of get around to the idea of suggestion and then kind of wrap up this particular podcast. I, don't, I, I hope I haven't done too much violence to, to Beyond's ideas in, in what I'm saying, but I, I do think that it's fair to say that basic assumption, the presence or absence of basic assumption ideas will not distinguish between violent and nonviolent groups. Oh, no, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. I, I so, think it's something else. It's not that that distinguishes between. Right. I think it's, it's discipline something. and structure and the ability to work with your own impulses. And that something like a nonviolent group, to really be nonviolent, has to have a lot of training. And so another approach would be psychological integration because that would attack the problem at the root and get it splitting. You know, if a personality is dominated by splitting, they are more inclined to accept this idea of, you know, my group good, your group bad, and to act on 
and to feel justified in acting on their impulses. So you could also approach it from the point of view of trying to diminish splitting, which is what psychoanalysis does. But I don't want to idealize psychoanalysis. Right. That's what say, education I don't want to say, too. if only everybody could get analyzed, that our problems would be solved, because that's right. absurd. Right, and it's it's, that's not going to happen anyway. Military training won't do it. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness won't do it. Mm-hmm. Psychoanalysis won't do it. It's complicated. Well, I guess what I want to get back to is suggested just before we leave the topic of the group of this of this group, uh, which is supposed to be crowd psychology um, <laughs> and the effects on individuals yeah. uh, being in large crowds. Do you think that suggestion does function in crowd psychology? Because we, we could talk about suggestion, we talk about individuals, we can talk about it uh, later when we talk about, you know, the ideologies of propaganda. But do you think that the way you understand suggestion, and maybe you could just summarize it for us, you know, the way, you're, the way you, you understand suggestion and how it relates to Beyond's ideas, and then, you know, do you think it's functioning in this kind of crowd psychology where people may drop their sense of being individuals or having a certain kind of conscience and just act out in some way. Do you think suggestion is uh, playing any role? Well, my interest in suggestion is what happens between two people. Okay, basically. which is a group in your... A group of two. But, but larger groups, all I can say, does suggestion, the question of suggestion play a role in, in group psychology or mob psychology? Mm-hmm. All I can say is it's tempting to assume that. Okay. But I, can, I don't know. Well, could you tell us how you define suggestion and what's called then, you know, its power? Why it is. Because people thought the power of suggestion in advertising or the power of suggestion for slogans or the power of suggestion. Well, it runs our, you know, our cult, the whole of our culture. You know, that's, <laughs> I mean, people, ordinary people use that phrase, the power of suggestion. Yeah. So you think that one individual is affecting the other individual in order to either control or manipulate or invade or something, the other individual. That's part of it. Okay. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. And people have an idea of what the power of suggestion is. What do you so think I that... I prefer not to obscure it by using technical language. Well, what would you say that that idea means, the power of suggestion? How would Robert well, Caper or Eleanor Johnson... Well, I mean, what I... In my simple way, I keep thinking... Is the thing of, you know, using suggestion depends what the individual say, what I want from you. Do I want, you know, acceptance or love or protection or encourage... You know what I mean? Just like whatever that, whatever I want from the other. Whatever I want, even from participating in the group. So how would you convey that? I think, well, I mean, I think a lot of it is, uh, I, I mean, there's always that undercurrent of the unconscious. But I think I think people use all, all different kinds of manipulation, control, mm-hmm. power over. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, within the, within the realm of suggestion, how they control your perception, how they want, how they work to try to control well, how your... How could someone control your perception other than you? How could someone control your perception? Well, Freud's answer was they can do it if, you're, if, you, if you have fallen in love with them. Mm. Okay. Think about it. Yeah. You know, I'm in love with the most beautiful, wonderful woman in the world. Mm. That's my perception. Mm-hmm. But is she controlling My it? best friend, however. Is she controlling that? You're controlling that, right? Projection. Yeah. Would you do me a favor, dear? 
Ah. Would you take out the trash? That's usually where that beautiful, wonderful thing falls. No. no. (laughs) Not if you're still in love. If you're still in love, you say, oh, yes, of course. Don't (laughs) sell your hands. If it's your roommate, I haven't ever found that to be the case. If it's your roommate, you say, it's not my turn, buddy. (laughs) Or if you don't like the person. Is that control? Is she trying to control your mind? Well, maybe, maybe not, but she sure does. Because her words carry a weight. Ah. But you see, I would say that's, that's again, coming from your projection. I mean, that's coming from the eye of the beholder. Well, that's one of the features of the the beholden. Well, that's also the the beauty of this title, Beyond and Thoughts Too Deep for Words. I mean, that is really, I mean, that's really inductive. Well, yeah. (laughs) One of the the beauties of the theory of projective identification is that it does specify that this is a link. It's not a one-way street. Yeah, it's a cycle. If you're doing it to somebody, then they are in a position to do it to you. you. And so in that sense, you are controlled. By controlling, if you control, you are controlled. If you need to amass huge amounts of money, then you end up with your life being controlled by money. Your life is controlled by, i got to go over here and get this because I make more money that way. And you run around chasing money all your life as though it's controlling it, which it is. But, okay, so, I mean, the thing is that there are, that's an uncomplicated projection, the money thing, because the money is not in a personal relationship with you. If it's if it's your beloved, I, I know a lot you, of people have a very personal. Relationship yeah, well, it's a one way street. It's all it's all them, um, because the, when you project into the eye of your beloved, that your beloved is actually a person, a subjectivity, and so that beloved may or may not be doing something back, and you can you know because you can have a beloved who you know you never even met, and they they have never made you take out the garbage. But you feel enthralled and completely enthralled to them. Might be a movie star or a goddess or something, but that other has never actually done anything to consciously control you. Consciously. It's important to remember that conjectural identification, is properly well, speaking, is unconscious. So if someone is not doing well, if someone is or isn't doing, uh, you need an analyst to Marilyn figure out. Marilyn Monroe has not done a lot of things personally to a lot of guys but she was very enthralling and a lot of guys thought that she was something to them so you know i mean i i do think there's a one-way street and a two-way street for this kind of you know well the question is would marilyn be appalled at this idealization or would she kind of maybe a little enjoy it well, she's been dead for a long time, so you know, I, I, think she, I think she may have enjoyed it. You think I, she's still enjoying it? I think I think <laughs> it's she's been, still around. She's still enjoying it. <laughs> she's still around. She's still around, but she's not really alive. So you know. Where, well, where, that's a whole other area. Right. <laughs> well, wherever she is now, looking down on us, right. I have a feeling she's still enjoying. Well, okay, that's your feeling, <laughs> but uh, I I do think there's this one thing I want to end with, which is that. The power of suggestion, I think, in fact, can very much be operating in groups when there are slogans or when there's a leader who is actually calling the group into a certain kind of mission or when there are media that are in some, somehow inciting people to have a particular view of something that is collective. And so I, I, I think that suggestion works to 
unify a group. It's not perfectly unified and it can split into being, you know, a basic assumption situation. But I do think that that suggestion, and I think suggestion functions in, in all groups, including psychoanalytic institutes. I don't mean simply in the consulting room, but in the organization. And to basically pull the group together in some way that's trying to motivate the whole group. Right, I agree. And, and so that's where I was going with the idea and trying to and trying to talk about it in regard to the mob psychology or the well, it, ta- it takes over your mind. It can take over your mind. It can stop your own thinking process. It stops your individual. And you just start yeah. following the, the, right. the mantra of the slogan or what the media tells you or what social media tells you, whatever. Right. I think we see a lot of that happening today. Well, yeah, yeah I, I yeah. agree. It organizes the yeah. groups for better yeah. or worse. Yeah. And, you know, the term mob also is not that precise because suppose a group of people get together and they control a whole country and they decide it would be a good idea to kill all the Jews. This actually happened at a meeting in 1942. But that was not <clears throat> was a that, crowd. Would you say that they are a mob? No. It's extremely violent. No, I'd say that mob. was more like a committee. Um, I mean, I, no, the I th- country that, that went along with it. That country it. didn't, the whole country didn't go along. I mean, those are ways of speaking. You know, I'm talking specifically about large groups of people that don't have a particular discipline or a particular containment, but are motivated by slogans or even by ideals. And the way that that motivation can work is to seem to unify the group. And, um, you know, again, going back to the anti-war movement, I know that when I got involved in the anti-war movement, I actually thought that these large protests were opposed to violence. But then when I did the one in New York where they were, everybody was shouting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Large groups of people shouting that. I felt that's a violent slogan there. That's violence, even in the slogan. And oh my gosh, this, this group, this crowd isn't doing what I thought they were doing. They're actually trying to do violence to this other side by assuming that they're killing the kids instead of recognizing that as a country, we got some problems here. We're supporting a military intervention. I don't think people were isn't. thinking in that kind of no, depth. No, but that's the crowd. That's the crowd. That's what I mean. That's right. where the some crowd of us was going. Supporting so, yeah, yeah. But, some no, were, were well, aware, yeah. Some okay. of us didn't know that problem. No, I'm right. talking about the demonstrations against the war. I don't they, know if you guys were in. Them. They weren't if, supporting the war. If you were in many demonstrations, but they would turn towards violence fairly quickly, and it was supposed to be an anti-war, anti-violent protest. The civil rights protests, because they were disciplined, because they were trained, never did that. Well, and so I was just trying to make that that contrast between the mob or the group and the protest that does have discipline and but, but again, be careful not to lump mobs together with, with violent groups, because if you think that the basic assumption groups are not organized, try you know, entering one and questioning the operative basic assumption. Try entering the military and asking for permission to address the men with a pacifist speech about the evils of violence and, well, no, I and mean, the crimes but, committed by the military, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You will, you will not get a very warm response from the group you're addressing because they are committed 
to this certain idea. You know, I've tried addressing psychoanalytic institutes about questions about their theories, and I did not get a warm response. Another, so another, it's, it's, another good example? Yeah, no, all of the groups, all the groups but, have but an identity that you, they protect you, themselves. If you ever get into that position, yeah, and you have been, you know very well that they're quite organized. Yeah. They are, they are uniformly against you. Well, and that takes organization. Again, I, I don't want to overdo and it's that. It's spontaneous organization. It doesn't no. require training. It doesn't require discipline. No, to me, that's. That is a real organization. But that's the basic assumption side of things. I mean, yeah. that's the archetypal side. It'll always come into play when you're in a group if there is a reason for the group to go in one of those directions. And, you know, there's splitting in all groups, of course, and there's violence in all groups. However, if you have a trained, disciplined approach to nonviolence, there is the possibility, because the civil rights movement lasted quite a long time with huge protests in which there was no violence, even when violence was done to them. And so that required a certain kind of training. Yeah, and there's a lesson to be drawn from that. Also, Gandhi, you know, in terms of all of the mass movements that he was the leader of, I mean, that he he found structures to help people contain, you know, a nonviolent protest, and then he died so violently. Well, his method was what they were using for the civil rights yes. movement. I, mean, Gandhi I thought a wonderful started. thing to kind of end with is just to kind of, uh, kind of from my point of view, is I, I just wrote this sentence, which I thought also summed up a lot, and it says that human consciousness is simply far more complex than outer consciousness comprehends. So once again, when you don't know something exists, you don't know how to perceive its influence. Right, that's right. So basic assumptions, archetypes, they exist. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, this was very, <laughs> this was really a beginning of something. I mean, there's, there's, yeah, this is, we could go on for another hour. Well, anyway, thank you very much, Robert, for joining us and well, stepping in with, <laughs> with Polly and <laughs> a wide ranging conversation right, here about moms and grounds. Yes, and, yes. So thanks to both of you. And thanks, Robert, so much. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.